Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off the valley of Hebron. When Joseph, set, when Joseph arrived in Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the flock fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Joseph, so Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but, they, but, in, <laughs> but saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said, said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled, up jo pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Well, good morning. It's so good to see you. Great to be together. And we're in a, a mini-series that we've called What God Does in Deserts. As we've been considering how God responds and how life, well, how, what God does in deserts, how, what, how God uses wilderness experiences and trials in people's lives for their good and ultimately for his purposes. And today we're going to be considering the trial of obscurity, the trial of obscurity and the lie of indispensability, this idea that many of us live with that we feel as though we are indispensable that we are needed and more than that we're afraid of not being needed we live in a world that values um, usefulness and money-making ability and yet in the past year so many of us have experienced well we're not we're not useful and we we're not allowed to make money um, and so perhaps we're not necessary after all and that's a difficult trial, a difficult challenge. We have all been through a painful experience over the past year. And all of us have lived in and are living in a wilderness, a desert of our own making or a desert of our own experience. Um, and so the question we're considering is, how does God do that? How does he confront the, that lie of indispensability? And how does he use forgottenness and the trial of obscurity for his purposes? The reality is that 
you, are not, you have not been forgotten, not been forgotten by others and not been forgotten by God. It may have been in the past year that you felt quite forgotten, you felt quite alone. It may be that you have forgotten others. It may be that you feel about that. I wish I could do the year that I've just had. I wish I could do it again. And certainly I've processed that a lot and thought, what would I do differently? There's plenty over the past year, plenty of times where I've seen my own anxiety, my own heart, and been embarrassed and ashamed and wish I could do it again. But this morning, although you might feel forgotten, the Lord says you're not forgotten. And actually the, the Word of God says that... Uh, even when we are faithless, he will remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. Now, what does God do in deserts? Well, looking at the experience of Joseph, what God does in deserts, contrary to what I've just said, is that often God appears to be absent and he stays silent sometimes. We could even say often Often we feel overlooked and unheard by God as we walk through trials. There was an occasion when I was a new Christian where I was at a church meeting and the speaker invited people to come and be prayed for and join this line of people being prayed for. And as the speaker went down praying for these different people, he was sharing God's majestic heart of love for each person, declaring good truth over them. And he just kind of missed me out and just carried on praying for everyone else. I remember standing there thinking, I'm here too, but... I felt overlooked. I felt like, oh, maybe God doesn't have a purpose for me. Maybe I'm, it, the guy's so embarrassed and awkward that I'm here, I shouldn't even be here at all. We have this saying, don't we, that absence makes the heart grow fonder, which in the case of Joseph, it certainly was. By the end of his life, as we'll see, his heart was fond towards God. But in my experience, God's absence often has the opposite response from me. When I feel abandoned by God, I feel tempted to abandon and walk away and wander away from God um, in response. Now, in the Bible, for every statement that we cheer and we love, statements like, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Hurrah, Psalm 23. For every statement like that, we also have Psalm 88. Why do you reject and hide your face from me? And for every verse of encouragement, the Lord binds up the brokenhearted. There's also plenty of, my pain is continuous and my wound is incurable, as in the case of Jeremiah. And the arrows of the Almighty are in me, my spirit drinks their poison, as in the case of Job. Sometimes when we need God the most, he can seem the most silent. And if not silent, we wonder if maybe he's responsible for the trouble that we're going through. Here's an interesting thought for you to ponder. If silence in the face of evil is complicity with evil, which is something people have said a lot in the past year, is God then in partnership with darkness? That's interesting. Now the man who wrote, um, C.S. Lewis, he wrote once upon a time, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. It's what he uses to bring us to our senses. But he also then wrote about his wife's battle with cancer. He said, time after time, when God seemed most gracious to us, he was really preparing the next torture. In the New Testament, the Apostle James says, consider it pure joy 
whenever you face trials, next slide, of various kinds, he says. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. God works wonders in the desert. He appoints angels to cook us breakfast, as we heard last week. He prepares people for a rescue mission, as in the case of Moses. But also in the wilderness and the desert, he sometimes just stands at a distance and allows life to knock us over every time we stand up. Joseph's story was a story of riches to rags and then on to eventual riches again. He went from being favored by his father to being forgotten by everybody to eventually being highly favored by the Pharaoh. The majority of his life's record in the Bible is one of disillusionment. No sooner had he gathered himself up, no sooner things started to go well for him than the rug gets pulled out from under his feet again. Consider it pure joy, Joseph, whenever you face trials of various kinds. Pure, unadulterated joy. Joseph started out in life with things going pretty easy for him and life looking pretty good. He'd been sold the idea by his dad early on that he was really special, more special than his brothers. You know, his brothers were sent out into the fields to do the hard, dangerous work. Joseph was kept home and then told to just read books and wear fancy clothes. And even Joseph's dreams seemed to reinforce for him his own specialness. He's the one who dreams of his, his whole family, including his father, bowing down before him. And so he tells his brothers, good news, you're all one day going to bow down before me. And he can't quite understand why they're not as excited about this as he is. In verse 20 that Kira read to us, they say essentially, let's kill him. Next slide. <laughs> no, next, oh, maybe it's gone. Um, he said, let's kill him and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. You know, up until that point, Joseph was destined for greatness, destined to be the center of attention, destined to have the world at his feet. Chris Tomlin's song could have been true of him, indescribable, indispensable, Joseph was. And in this way, Joseph is like so many of us. In fact, it would seem that he's like an increasing number of us. Author Jean Twangy collected data from a 19-year period, and she discovered that there's been a marked increase in traits associated with, with having a narcissistic personality. Those traits, among others, include being someone who struggles to empathize, being someone who's easily offended, and being someone who genuinely feels themselves to be superior to others. And we're all on this spectrum somewhere, but what she found was that between 1987 and 2006, more and more people were agreeing with statements such as, I'm a special person, and I can live my life whatever way I want, and even if I ruled the world, it would be a better place. And several years ago, a young woman named Sheila Larson is quoted as inventing her own religion. Sheilaism, she called it. She says, I believe in God, but I'm not a religious fanatic, and I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith is in me. It's Sheilaism. Essentially, just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself, she says. So we're all Joseph now, or Sheila. Well, you actually are. Um, Actually, as a pastor of one of America's largest churches, writes in one of his books, God didn't create you to be average. You were made to excel. Start believing. I've been chosen, set apart, destined to live in victory. Destined to live in victory. Destined, like Joseph, to have the world bow down before us, each one of us. Destined to have our family and friends proclaim our 
glory and our, na- and our worth, destined even for God to bow down and recognize our brilliance. I think the princess bride gets it more right, however, um, when, they, when it says this, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says something differently is selling something. In the desert, God confronts this lie of indispensability and the idea that we are entitled to comfort and ice cream whenever we want it. God confronts this lie. He does this with Joseph. He confronts this lie by being silent and by leaving us feeling hidden and forgotten. It's the trial of obscurity. No doubt Joseph, was called, Joseph called out to God for deliverance from his pit and in the prison. And yet God stays quiet. To Joseph, or to the person who's used to being the center of attention, God ignores him or her. He ignores us. God's silence in the face of evil isn't complicity with evil or a sign that he's in partnership with darkness. Instead, God's silence instead is sometimes simply meant to starve our egos dry and set us free from the love of self. Now, one of the best things I think I've, has ever happened to me is the privilege of God kind of giving me permission to move to Seaford and pastor the church here. It is a huge privilege and something I do not take for granted. The joy of seeing what God's doing among us and he has been doing over the decade or so that we've been together. But it wasn't, I didn't always feel like that. It wasn't always the case. He raised as I was, really, as a Joseph, a middle child who needed a lot of attention and constant affirmation. Raised as a Joseph with a strong sense of my own entitlement, in part because my parents, you know, well-wishing as they were, showered me with praise, in part because I was part of an encouraging church culture that prophesied dreams and visions over me, but in part, in large part, because of my own arrogance. I felt destined as a young Christian in his early 20s, destined to move to a city and do something big and be involved with crowds of thousands and see healings everywhere I went and people coming to Jesus in their hundreds and just being very, very impressive. Instead, God, in his kindness, sent me to a small town a quiet town, and I moved into a quiet neighborhood in a quiet town, that at age 29, I thought I'd retired. And instead of a big stage in some big city, we used to have to wheel out the stage from behind the school hall and set it up and careful not to trap your fingers every week. And, you know, there was, what, 20 of us, 30 of us in the beginning. Do you remember those days in the school hall? That was fun. God, in his kindness, gave me permission to be forgotten about. And to realize that I'm not that important, not that impressive. He saved me from the delusion of my own grandeur and from pursuing a worldly form of greatness. Now, I'm not saying I'm cured. I think it's a battle that every one of us fights our entire lives. But what I am saying is I'm aware I was ill, I was sick, and I'm aware that Jesus is the only one. God is the only one who's able to, who has the medicine to make any of us right again. In that sense, I'm grateful for the desert of God's silence. Grateful for God putting me, putting us through experiences of forgottenness. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to a person, the worst thing that can happen to you is for God to answer your prayers in the way that you want him to. 
Because maybe you have. Maybe you've experienced something like that. Maybe life's been slower and more unimpressive than you thought it would be. Maybe people haven't recognized your own beauty or brilliance as much as you thought they should. Maybe you had your own crisis of limitation experience some time ago. Thank God for that. God handpicks the trials for each one of us. And he does so not as, not as a sadist, but as an artist and as a coach and as a blacksmith. He does so as an orchestra conductor and as a master storyteller. As a master storyteller, in Joseph's experience, this was true. You see, whilst on the surface, God appears to be silent. Yet you see on closer inspection that God is working in Joseph's life through the many coincidences and events that he, he walks through. Joseph famously says to his brothers at the end of his, his life, he says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. And then he, evil, he even is able to see the currents of God's fingerprints moving underneath the surface so that he says, it wasn't you that sent me to Egypt, but it was God who sent me here for the saving of many lives. That seems to be how Joseph makes sense of the silence and of all the unanswered prayers. God may be silent on the surface, but there are ripples of currents of God's moving in unseen and incidental ways in Joseph's life and in yours. In verse 15, Joseph just happens to bump into a man at Sheshem who just happened to have overheard the brothers saying that they were going to Dothan. Then Reuben, who had intended to rescue Joseph, just happened to be away when the Ishmaelites were passing by. And we begin to count all of the things that just happened in Joseph's life until we lose count. Could it be that God is working beneath the surface of our lives far more than we're willing to give him credit for and admit? You know, occasionally we do. We catch glimpses of God's fingerprints over a situation. But more often we experience the feeling as though he has hidden himself from us. He's not walking with us through pain and suffering as though we feel he should have done or we expected him to. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller says, A seven-year-old cannot question the mathematical calculations of a world-class physicist, and yet we so often question how God is running the world. How does that make sense? I like what Evelyn Underhill once wrote. She said, If God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. And as we gather together as, as Christians, as those who are seeking God in the world, we should gather with that mindset, not expecting to understand everything that's happened, but recognizing that life is full of trials, but even in the midst of those trials, he's with us. Even when we feel as though he's forgotten us, he has not forgotten us. But nevertheless, those feelings of being forgotten and overlooked are real and strong. And I've even spoken to several people who've walked through some horrendous things in their lives and said afterwards that it did them a lot of damage because God felt, they said, distant the whole time. What are we to do with that? What are we to do with those feelings of God being distant, especially when we so often sing and read Bible verses about the opposite being true? Now, on the one hand, God appears absent because if we're honest, when we're suffering, everyone seems absent. Our emotional life is in turmoil. It's as though we're a compass that's spinning out of control, not able to point north anymore. We can range from resentment to self-pity to outright hostility to needy vulnerability and through to self-reliance, all in the space of 10 minutes. It's not just the case. 
during times of suffering and hardship that we don't sense God's love and presence and peace. It's often that we can't experience the love and peace and presence of the people in the very same room as us. John Newton, the famous hymn writer, once wrote to a sister of his who was grieving, and he said to her this, if we go to the next slide, or skip through a few sides, no, back, back, back to, no, oh, maybe I didn't write it down, sorry about that. He says, if we seem to get nothing, if we seem to get no good, if we seem to get no good by attempting to draw near to God, we may be sure that we shall get none by keeping away from him. If we seem to get no good by attempting to draw near to God, we may be sure that we shall get none by keeping away from him. The truth doesn't change any more than a solid object in front of me disappears when I can't see it. God seeming or not feeling to be close to us is not the same as him actually being distant. You know, during lockdown, um, they had some amazing experiences over the world as far as the natural world was concerned. As, as we stopped and were shut into our houses, the world came back to life and reclaimed some of its spaces. And one of the experiences that was reported was of pollution clearing up, um, such that a, t- a town 200 kilometers away from the Himalayas went from not being able to see it to being able to see the Himalayas in the distance. And there's these beautiful videos and footage of people running up onto their roofs one morning when they realized the Himalayas are there. We never knew. Our whole lives has been clouded by pollution. Now we can see it afresh. And this is the case in the coincidences of Joseph's life. It may be that through the coincidences of your life, you begin to see, as you look back over things, God's hand of activity. Instead, what we often find when we suffer, when we go through desert, wilderness experiences, is that there is a gap between what we know to be true and what our hearts believe in their experience to be true. Many people have found this. They know the Bible verses about God's comfort and companionship in suffering, and yet in the experience, their emotional life is in turmoil such they don't experience anything at all. And that's not to be ignored. It's not to be explained away, but it's to be acknowledged and recognized there is a gap between your heart's knowledge of God and the truth of who God is. I read this beautiful example of a man who, um, after the loss of several children, uh, he writes in his memoirs, The View from a Hearse. He says this, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed, simply left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. The truth espoused by the first comforter may well have been truth, but it didn't, didn't account for the gap between the man's heart and for the truth. Often it's the case in Scripture, with the, we looked at this recently with the experience of Job's comforters, to sit and talk at someone and to just declare things to them that, or ask probe-leading questions to them is sometimes the most hurtful and unhelpful thing you can do. But instead, to enter into someone's disquiet, to legitimate the tension that they experience, and to listen and to love, it bridges the gap between a person's heart and head. 
You don't have to gather. We don't gather understanding everything and having all of our answers uh, solved before we enter the room. We gather as God's people with all of our hurt and pain and questions, walking through the desert going, God, what are you doing? Help me in this instance. You see, somewhere in the silence of Joseph's life, Joseph finds his heart's rest in God. All that he knew about God from his family when they'd raised him, telling him about the God of Abraham and of Isaac, had told him those stories. All of that truth became his own. We know this because despite obscurity and apparent abandonment, when the time came, we hear Joseph's heart speak. See, Joseph is a man familiar with pits and prisons. From the wilderness in Dothan to a prison cell in Egypt, Joseph sits there, but he doesn't get bitter. Rather, he gets better. And in chapter 40, verse 8, two men in the prison with him have dreams and come to Joseph. And Joseph, as a young man, he's experienced with dreams. I can interpret dreams. I know what to do with dreams. But instead, his answer is this. He says, don't interpretations belong to God? And then when Pharaoh has a dream, Joseph says to him, it's not me who interprets, it's God. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph becomes ready at last through the desert, through the trial of God's absence. Joseph learns that God remained his only source of hope and strength, the only one who could help him. I love what um, artist Makito Fujimura says, He says, psychological and emotional health, like spiritual growth, cannot be imposed from the outside. God didn't just, doesn't just snap his fingers and impose on you and me maturity and wisdom. He doesn't do that any more than a counselor can impose mental well-being onto us. It isn't imposed from the outside. It isn't a drug that you take. It's a relationship and a partnership It's something that's fought for on the inside, in the cell, and in the darkness, and in the silence. Now, you can go to church till you're sick on cucumber sandwiches, but unless you learn to partner with the Holy Spirit and seek Jesus in the middle of the trial that's going on, no amount of church going will help, because God invites you to partnership and friendship. You know, in the most famous sermon in the history of the world, it ends not on a note of hope and comfort, but on a note of challenge and with the sound of a crash. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins by saying, blessed are the poor, blessed are the brokenhearted, blessed are the meek. He pronounces blessings on people, but he ends by saying, the foolish man hears my words and doesn't build his life on them. He's like a, he's like a man who builds his house on the sand, and when the storms come and the winds blow, He ends by saying, the fall of that house was great. Joseph's life began with a lust for greatness that only resulted in a great crash in his brothers, punching him in the face, kicking him into a prison cell, and abandoning him. In the desert, God appeared absent, and Joseph sought eventually a different kind of greatness. A greatness not of his own doing, based on his own understanding of everything, but a greatness that comes from trusting God and partnering with him in the silence. Now, Joseph didn't have what we have. We live 2,000 years after the cross of Jesus Christ, where on the cross, Jesus cried out, the only man that could ever say this in human history, cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And because Jesus was forsaken by God, you and I can know with all certainty that he will never forsake you. He'll never abandon you. He'll never forget you and kick you out and say, I never want to hear from you again. For all those who trust in Jesus, instead he's near to the brokenhearted. And he wants to partner with you and I. In the desert, God may put us through trials of abandonment. We may feel lost in pits and prisons, sometimes of our own doing, sometimes of his doing. But through the trials of obscurity, God comes to comfort you and I. He comes to confront the lie of indispensability, to say that you and I are not needed. The world doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. But he does choose you. He does love you. We live in a galaxy that is, by galaxy standards, small. In a universe with over two trillion different galaxies. That makes me feel very small. And if I'm, if I'm determined to get my value and my worth from my apparent significance and importance in the universe, I'm destined to failure. Two trillion galaxies that know nothing of you and I, this small town, in this small island, in this small planet, in a part of a ginormous universe. Your value does not come from the fact that you're big and impressive and important and have a large reputation and are loved by everyone. Your value and importance comes from the fact that you're known by God and you're loved by him and he sent his son for you. He sent his son and he forsook his son. He abandoned his son such that you could say, you'll never have to say with Jesus, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray, let's get Kevin up, and let's respond to that glorious truth together.